we're once again back in Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 18 is where we're going to start. And uh, once again, it is an honor for me to be able to preach, um, uh, especially to be able to fill in for Gunner. This is, uh, it's, it's such a great thing to be here at this church and sit under a pastor who is so good at delivering the word of God and who every week we get to come here and listen to a man who I know pours his heart and soul into the word of God and is able to deliver it to us so well. Um, and uh, I really appreciate his trust to be able to do this. Uh, we're going to start with verse 18 of Romans chapter 8. Uh, and we're going to read through verse uh, 27. In Romans chapter 8, 18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the, the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Let's ask his blessing upon the reading of his words. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that we can... Learn and grow from it. And Father, may your Holy Spirit speak to each of our hearts this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, if you'll remember back two weeks ago when we were last in Romans, uh, Gunnar brought us up to this point. And, it, and Paul has just left off speaking about the fact that we are adopted as sons, specifically because sons carried with it all of the benefits of the inheritance. And so whether we're men or women, boys or girls, we are adopted as sons into the kingdom of God, into the family of God. And with that, we get the privilege to look up to God and call him Abba, Father, dear daddy. We are able to have this familial relationship with, the God, in with God in heaven. And then we come to the last verse in that passage in verse 17, and it says, And if children, heirs also... Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him. And Gunnar left off by saying what we're looking forward to is this, this glorification process that we're going to end up in heaven. But at the same time, we also get to participate with him in his sufferings here on earth. Now, none of us like to think about that part of it. And that was kind of how he ended that the, uh, a couple of weeks ago's sermon was how we, we, we participate in both the suffering and the, the future glory. And Paul's going to continue that train of thought here as he picks up in verse 18 and says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And so he starts off with this, this theme of suffering again. Now, I don't know about you, but none of us like to go through suffering. I know I don't. I'd prefer everything to be nice and easy. But we're here on earth and we're going to face these times. And yet Paul is saying... 
you know, I consider the sufferings are not worthy to be compared with what's going to be revealed. Now, how can he say this? Because, you know, when you're in the middle of a bad time, I doubt most of us are sitting there going, oh, yeah, you know, this is great. This is nothing compared to what's going to come. Let's just enjoy this, this, this uh, fun for this week. No, most of us are like, wow, this is overwhelming. It's a burden. It's painful, and I don't want to go through it. But Paul is going to take us through a study here in these next several verses and show us why what we experience here is going to be all forgotten when, what, when we get to heaven and when we experience what Christ has laid up for us and what we have come to experience. And he does this by using something that most of us don't like to experience either. He's going to break this passage down into three different, um, three different subjects that Paul describes each of them as doing this thing that most of us don't like to do called groaning. And the reason we don't like to groan is because usually when we're groaning, it doesn't mean we're going through good times, right? It means we're in pain. It means we're suffering. Groaning is usually not thought of as being something good. I groan after I get done with a 10-mile run, and then I sit down too long, and I stand up. I groan because my muscles hurt. And for most of us, groaning is not associated with something that's good. And it's not associated with good stuff here either. And so Paul is going to break this passage down around this thing. And he says he's going to talk about how the earth groans, how we groan, and then how the Holy Spirit groans. And showing how everything is looking forward to the future when we're going to experience the blessings of adoption at that final glorification when we're in heaven. He, so that's how he starts off. He says, I don't consider the sufferings to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed. And now he starts to break that down. He goes on in verse 19 and he says, um, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So the first thing that he stops is it, the first thing that he talks about is he talks about the earth itself. And he talks about how the earth itself is groaning and is under affliction and is under distress because of sin. Now, um, how is he how how is how is this possible? Um when he starts off here in verse 19, and, he's, and, and, uh, you know, and he starts off this argument about the earth, we have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. What happened at the very beginning in the book of Genesis? Here's God, and he creates this absolutely perfect world. And he looked around, and he, he said on days one through, uh, one through five, he says it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. And then he comes to mankind and he creates Adam and puts him in this very perfect garden. And he says, and he looked at Adam and he said he was very good. And so at the end of creation, you're left with this beautiful, perfect garden. And what was Adam supposed to do? He's supposed to plant the garden, tend the garden, take care of the animals, name the animals, do all this stuff and live in this perfect condition. But then what happens? Adam, just like us, we can't blame Adam. We would have done the same thing at some point. Adam eventually sins by eating the, the fruit that's given to him by Eve. And because of Adam's sin, God comes along and curses not just Adam and Eve, not just mankind, 
but he actually goes into the ground. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19... In Genesis chapter 3, this is where God has come into the garden and he's looked for Adam and he says, Adam, where are you? Because Adam's hiding because he now knows he's a sinner and he knows he's got this fellowship and he shouldn't, he shouldn't be able to approach God in his sin. And God finds Adam and he's, he gives him, giving him the curse. And he says to Adam, he said in verse 17 of Genesis chapter 3, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taking. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, if you think about it, all of us have now experienced what he's talking about here. Do we go out to our gardens, just drop a little seed on the ground, and then walk out two weeks later, and lo and behold, there's some beautiful tomato plants out there? Man, I wish it was that easy. I love fresh tomatoes. And I love to eat my fresh oranges off my orange trees. But you know what? My orange trees have taken 50 years to get to that point, And they're still not very good on two of the trees because the ground is doing something weird and making them taste bad. So now we experience this, this cursed world because of what happened back there. And so that's why it describes the earth as groaning. You know, anybody who's ever tried to plant anything experiences the fact that you have to go out and work at it. It doesn't just happen overnight. We have play, you know, we, it would be nice if, I know we think we live in San Diego County and it's going to be 78 degrees year round, but most of us right now know when we walk out that door, it's not quite as beautiful as what we'd like the rest of the country to believe. We actually do get hot and we're reminded that we actually live in a desert occasionally. Um, so, you know, everywhere we go, we experience, yes, the earth is beautiful and we see God's creation, but we also know that it was cursed, and we have to experience that. And so the earth is described first as groaning. It's described, and when you think of, um, and the other interesting thing here is that when he talks in verse 19, and he says, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That anxious longing there, it's the idea of straining forward. Now, I don't, I don't really like horses all that much, but I have watched the occasional horse race. And you watch, uh, if you watch the uh, Kentucky Derby or something, I find it interesting. But what are they doing? When those horses are behind that gate, they've got that bridle in their mouth and that rider is there. Are they just nonchalantly sitting there just kind of waiting on the gate to open? No, those horses are trained to race. And as soon as that gate goes up, those horses are straining forward. Their, bit, their bits all the way back. The rider is, is bent forward. Why? Because he's straining forward to head towards that gate to go into the race to reach the finish line. And that's the way the earth is described here. That it's, it's groaning. It's, it's leaning forward and it wants the end to come. It wants to reach that finish line. It's looking forward to the day when it's going to experience the full redemption of salvation. Because ultimately the Bible is, describes that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. That all things have become new. And that's what even the earth is looking forward to. Now here's the interesting thing though. The earth... Now when we sinned, there's only one person to blame. What does the Bible said? For all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. For, and then Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So when we sin and we cause the curse through Adam on us, it was our fault. But the earth, did the earth sin? 
No, the earth didn't sin. That tree, the tree did not sin against God. We did. And so the interesting thing here is that if you look at verse 20, you'll see that it's the creation is actually, it's experiencing the curse, but not because of what the earth did, but because of what we did. It says the creation was subject to subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption. All of those words there, slavery, uh, not willingly, subjected, all of those speak of the fact that the reason the earth is in the condition it is, is not because the earth was bad. What is, God created it and said it was good. But the reason it's the way it is, is because of our sin. And so even the earth experiences the curse because of our sin and because of what it did. But what does it look forward to? Here's the fact, here, here's the other interesting part of that. The earth is not looking forward to the day when the tree is redeemed. Because guess what? That tree is not going to be redeemed. Who gets redeemed? Who is who God loves, who he sent Jesus Christ to redeem? He didn't send Jesus Christ to redeem the ocean or the tree or the bird. He sent him to redeem us. And so the earth looks forward, as it says in verse 19 and verse 21, it says, For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. And in verse 21 it says, that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption in the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, when we experience our full redemption, when we reach that ultimate day where we look at Jesus Christ face to face and we experience a new heaven, that's when earth itself will be released from its captivity. And all of the stuff that infects the earth right now, all the things we worry about, that we, that we deal with uh, as far when we try to plant things and all these things that annoy us about living on the earth, they're going to be done away with because Jesus Christ loved us enough to redeem us. And at the same time, the earth is going to experience those benefits as well. And so this is where he starts. He starts with the earth. But fortunately, anytime that we are confronted in Scripture with the negative, we're not left there. Because just with, like with salvation, we're not left in our sin. The earth is not left without hope. He ends this first section here in verse 22 with these words. He says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Now, what do we see there that's hopeful? My wife is pregnant right now, as you guys know, and, and in two months, hopefully, I'm going to be a daddy, and it's going to be wonderful, and we've been looking forward to this a long time. Most of you have already experienced that. Now, as hard as it is to go through that labor, there's hardly any mother in the world that would say that, might, that labor was not worth what came at the, after that. As they look upon that baby and they see that child that they get to raise and pour their life into and become a part of, that's what makes that pain of childbirth worth it. And so for the earth, as Paul is describing the earth here groaning and it's painful and it wants the end to come, it's not a pain that leads to, okay, the earth is destroyed and it's all gone. It's a pain that leads to childbirth, to a new and glorious and fresh start, a new life. And so he ends this section by saying the earth is groaning. Yes, it's affected by the curse, but it's looking forward to the day when Christians are going to be revealed and experience the full measure of their redemption. And at the same time, it's going to be a new and glorious day of rebirth 
for creation. The other thing you'll see about this passage is now he moves on, and at each level it builds upon the next, and now he's going to build upon this, and we come into the next entity that groans, and that's us. He says here in verse 23, he says, And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he has already seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. You see, he started with the earth. Something that is kind of, it's inanimate. And, and God's going to redeem it, but that's not who he died for. And then he moves into who we are as people. We were the ones who sinned. We were the ones who caused creation to be in the state that it is. And he comes into us and he says that now, remember, he's, he's already established the fact that we are adopted as children of God. But have we fully experienced that yet? No. That's the whole point of this passage. We're going to go through times in this life because we still live here as human beings that it's not going to be fun and it's not going to be easy. And we are also groaning because we are still human beings. We're still going to face pain and suffering. And whether it's physical or mental, or emotional, or spiritual. We're still going to have those times in our lives where we find ourselves going, Lord, this is too much to bear. And he says we, in the middle of that time, have hope. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says this. It says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison." Then the interesting thing about 2 Corinthians is this. The book of 2 Corinthians was written before the book of Romans. And Romans, it kind of seems like he's taking what he talked about in 2 Corinthians, and then he's expanding on the concept. In, uh, and and, and he's, he's brought up a lot of these concepts before. Um, the, the difference between us and creation is that unlike creation, we've experienced some of the glory that's, that's going to come. Has creation experienced the glory of God? No. It can't feel. It can't experience. The Bible, I mean, you can't go to that tree and find a piece of God in it. I'm sorry, but it's not there. But you can come into every heart of every believer. And what do we have within us? We have the Holy Spirit. And so unlike creation, God has put himself inside each one of us so we can experience a little piece of his glory here on earth before we fully experience his glory in heaven. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, 12 describes just a little bit of what, of, of what he's talking about here. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul says this. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. Now, have you ever, I, I, you know, I have tinted windows on my car, so they're hard to see in, but I, I can see reflections fairly decent in my window. And uh, have you ever, like, ca- just caught a glimpse of something, and you can kind of look at it and see what's behind you? Maybe you don't want to turn all the way around and kind of act like you're snooping or something. So you just kind of get a picture of it in your, in your window. It, can you kind of see what's going on with that? Yeah, usually. It's, a, it's, a, it's an image. You can kind of get that image. But do you really know everything about that image? No. You don't really see it totally clearly. 
It's the same thing with a photograph or something like that. I've seen lots of photographs of the Golden Gate Bridge. But until I was standing at the Golden Gate Bridge, at the base of it, taking my own picture of it, and seeing just how big it was and how massive it was and all of this, you can't even understand the, 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 just the, the, how big something like that is or the Empire State Building or any of that. A picture is just simply that. It's a picture. It, we can kind of get an idea for it. We can be amazed by it. We can appreciate it. We can love it. But it is not the same as being there and fully experiencing it for ourselves. And that's exactly what Paul is saying now. Because of the Holy Spirit... We get a little picture of what heaven's going to be like. We get a little picture of what the glory that we're going to experience in heaven for all of eternity is going to be like. But because we're still here on earth, because we have human eyes and we can't really get the total picture, we're left with just a a very dim image of who God is. Romans 8 we, we just talked about this passage two weeks ago. Romans eight fifteen through 16 says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And just to remind us that the Holy Spirit is what allows us to get this picture of the future that's coming. And while we call God Abba, Father now, can we reach out and touch him? No. We know he's there. We have the Holy Spirit. But when we see him face to face and when we fall down before him and the Bible tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's when we're going to truly experience who God is. And then the last passage I want to look at is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, remember Paul is in 2 Corinthians kind of has this same theme going on that we're here on earth and it's temporary and we, we, we experience a little bit of God's glory, but not really the real thing. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5, Paul says this. He says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. And I think what he's saying here is this. We've all seen buildings, right? We go and we see lots of buildings and old buildings and new buildings. But even the oldest buildings that you've ever seen, are they inhabitable at this point? No, most likely not. Most of our old buildings, people don't live in. We might keep them for museums, but they're not very comfortable and they're falling down. You could build a building that may last for a thousand years. But in the end, it's really nothing more than a tent. It's really nothing more than something that could go up in flames and be gone. But God is building for us an eternal house. He's building for us an immortal body. We, if we live 60, 70, 90, 100, 110 years, our bodies are still mortal. They're going to die. They're going to rust. They're going to wear out. But God is preparing for us a place where we will never die, where we will never pass away, where we will experience him forever for all of eternity. That's what we have to look forward to. Now, he starts off this passage in verse 23, and he says, not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit. Remember, the spirit is the important thing here. The spirit is what guarantees that we have this future prepared for us in heaven. In um, 
And, and the, the concept of first fruits in the Old Testament was very important. The, uh, the, in Exodus 23, 19, there's a command given to the children of Israel, and it says, you shall bring the choice fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. So if you're a farmer and you're planting your fields and you have all of these fruits and vegetables you've grown, and they were, they were farmers and shepherds and things like that. That's how they, that's how they ate. And so they plant their fields and what would happen? You'd do your first harvest and you wouldn't keep a portion of that harvest. You would take that, your best, your, your first fruits, the best of the crop, and you would take it to the temple and you would, you would, you would, you would give it to God. You would, you would donate it to him and the priest would actually be the ones who got to eat that food. You wouldn't. And, um, and what were you saying by doing that though? You were saying, first of all, I want to thank God for all the blessings that he's given me so that when when I look around and I see all these fields and all of these crops that are coming in, thank you, Lord, for what you've done for me. But then on the other hand, what were you also doing? You were saying, God, I'm giving you this portion of my crop, so I'm not going to be able to eat it. I'm going to give it away to you because I'm trusting that what you've got prepared for me is so much better. I'm trusting that if I give you 10% of my crop, that for the next four or five months while I'm harvesting this crop, it's going to be huge and it's going to be bountiful and I'm going to have plenty to eat and I'm going to have plenty to feed my family because that's how much I trust you. And so when he says that the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of what he has prepared for us, it's because he's giving us the Holy Spirit and he's saying, if you'll just trust me, if you will just hold on to me and allow me to lead you through even the hard times, even the tough times, the times when you're suffering, the times when it's not easy, I have something prepared for you that is so much better and so much bigger and so much more bountiful than you can ever experience. And so that's why he says the Holy Spirit is the first fruits. It's not all we're going to experience. If this is all there is, it's not a lot. It's great. We have families. We have friends. We have fun times. We have joy. But we also have pain. And we also have suffering. And we also have illness. And we also have death. But he says this is just the beginning. This is just the taste. And there's so much more coming. And so the first fruits is very important. The Holy Spirit is what seals us. And says, you are my own and I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Ephesians 4.30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The day when your body will become new. The day when you will see Christ face to face. Um, it's interesting to me that in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is again bringing up this point, he says in 1 Corinthians 15.44, that it is sown as a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. He's saying that you, you're, you know, as good as our bodies here are on earth, they're going to wear out someday. And, but that when we die, there's a spiritual body waiting for us that is far, far more, uh, far better than what we've experienced here on earth. And it's interesting to me that he uses the farming terms there. He's just talked about first fruits. And then when he talks about how our body goes away and we get a new one, he also uses farming terms. That it's going to be raised, it's going to grow a new life. Um, and, the, and at the end of verse 23, he brings up the fact of the new body as something we're looking forward to. He says, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Now, all of us can kind of sympathize with the groaning in our bodies, right? At some point in time or another, 
all of us have groaned a little bit when we've had to wake up in the morning or when we've had that pain or, you know, I mean, even no matter how much you exercise, guess what? Age catches up with you. And so maybe at 18, you can do a six minute mile and you can bench press 150, 200 pounds, maybe more, not me. Um, and, uh, you know, but as you keep going, guess what? My six minute mile became a seven minute mile, eight minute mile, 10 minute mile. Um, and it starts to hurt and it starts to become painful because guess what? God did not design our bodies to live forever. And so eventually our bodies will wear out. But God says, this is not the end. There is a body waiting for us that is not going to get old, that is not going to get weak, that's not going to get weary, that's not going to wear out, but one that is going to be forever in heaven with God for all of eternity. Now, I don't know what that body looks like. In fact, it's interesting. Gunnar brought it up the last time he preached on this two weeks ago. We don't have a ton of information about what heaven's going to be like. But we are told, hey, there's going to be a new body. I kind of think it's going to be like what Jesus Christ's body was like when he was raised from the dead. When Jesus Christ had his new body, did they still know who he was? Yeah. So apparently he looked pretty physical. People knew, they knew who he was when he walked in and his disciples said, oh, it's Jesus. And, but, and we know that he could just appear wherever he wanted and do all these other things. But we also know that he was he ascended into heaven in bodily form and that there he is in heaven today. So that's probably a little taste of what our bodies are going to be like. But no matter what, the more and I think that people, you know, there's a lot of you in the room today that can probably, um, you know, you probably have a little bit better expectation of this than someone at my age. But I think the more I age, the more I'll be looking forward to a time when. We'll be out of this body. A time when we'll experience something that will be far greater than anything we've experienced on earth. And we won't have to deal with the pain, the suffering, the aging, and the aching. And so he goes on in verse 24 and he says, For in hope we've been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he has already seen? Now I had to read that a couple times because I get the hope part, right? We get hope. We understand hope. That's what he's been talking about here, that we have the hope that this is not the end, that when this body wears out and falls apart and they bury me in the ground, there's more to this life. But he he says, you know, but hope that's seen is not hope for who hopes for what he has already seen. And then I got started thinking about this. For me, I love pastry. Okay, I love food in general, but I really love pastry. Um, unfortunately, the more you eat pastry, a weird things happen. Your belt gets smaller. I don't, I don't know why that is, but the belt, your clothes size has something to do with the way you eat pastries. And so I've had to like go through times in my life and they're very painful and horrible times where you have to refrain from eating those pastries so you can actually have the belt grow again and fit around your waist. So when I've been in those times and maybe I'll go for two weeks, three weeks without eating one of these delicious, fantastic pastries. The first time you put one of those in your mouth, and I like to think of Peterson's Donuts. Um, first time you put a good apple fritter from Peterson's Donuts in your mouth and you, and you haven't had one in like a month or anything else like that. Oh, it's so good. It is the most delicious tasting thing. Now, if I had had one just the night before, would it be as delicious to me? No. It's good. But, maybe if, I, but if I had one seven straight days, probably wouldn't be as good by the seventh day. In fact, it might be too sweet. But... If I've gone for three or four weeks without one, wow, 
That thing tastes amazing. I think that's what he's getting at here. Delayed gratification. The fact that the more we experience life on earth, and he's sitting here saying, yeah, you're going to have hard times, but you're going to have some good times, and we can look through those and say, okay, well, this was fun, and this was good, but man, this hurt, and this hurt, and boy, I wish this could just be over with, and I wish we could just get to this point, and God's saying, you know what? You have to experience all this, so when you get here, it's going to be that much better. And so he could have come down and said, you know what, here's a video of what heaven's like. And I'm just going to show it to you right now and get it over with. And then you can just say, sit, sit on earth for the next 80 years, just, just waiting till you get to experience what's in this magnificent video of heaven. You know what, though? If we had it, we would immediately go, oh, I'm not waiting for that. That's it. I quit. I'm not going to do anything else. I'm just going to sit here and wait to die. But he doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to live our lives. He wants us to experience him. He wants us to grow in him so that when we see him face to face, it's that much sweeter because of what we've already experienced on earth. And we know that when we get there, all the pain and the suffering and the things we've had to go through down here that were not fun will never have to happen again. And we'll also trust him because he has brought us through every single one of those times. By the power of his Holy Spirit. And so we have the Holy Spirit as the first fruits. And then we have these new and glorified bodies. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 and 21 says this. For our citizenship is in heaven. From which also we eagerly wait for a savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who will transform the body of our humble state. Into conformity with the body of his glory. By the exertion of the power that he has. Even to subject all things unto himself. And so we wait for that time when we will get this new body and we will fully experience him as he is. But just as creation doesn't groan in vain, neither do we. Because we have been saved not just to stand, not just to be down here on earth and fumble around, but we have been saved in hope. Verse 24 says, for in hope we have been saved. And then verse 25 says, if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. You know, we're down here on earth and we have the Holy Spirit to help us to keep going. Perseverance is you keep going even when it's hard. It's easy to walk when you have nothing on your back and everything's going great. It's hard to walk when you're hurting and when it's painful and there's stuff in your path and there's holes on the road and it's hard to take that next step. But that's when the Holy Spirit comes along and says, I am your strength. I am your power. And you can get through the next day and the next hour and the next week and the next year. And that's what we have the Holy Spirit for. But between the first adoption, so he's ended this passage and and, and we've, we've talked about how we were adopted as sons in verse 17. And now he's talked about, hey, we're looking forward to the time when we're going to be glorified and we're going to have these new and wonderful bodies. But guess what? There's this period of time on earth. And between adoption and glorification is this period called sanctification, where the Spirit works inside of us to make us holy and works on us to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ so that when we see Him in glory, we will have already experienced Him here on earth. 
And that's what this, the, the last two verses are talking about. Now, we're actually going to pick up these verses next week and start at verse 26, but I want to end at 26 and 27 this week. And it says, In the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You see, we have a problem. Remember chapter 7? We're saved, but does God immediately take out that old nature and just make us glorified? No. <laughs> what does Paul say? He says, the things I want to do, that's what I don't do. The things that I, 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 I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. He's got this war going on, and all of us are in that situation. But the Bible says we have the Holy Spirit, because what happens is, we want to serve Christ. We want to do the right thing. But sometimes we don't even know what the right thing to do is. Sometimes we don't even know how to pray. We don't even know what we need when we ask God for those things. And so what happens? We have the Holy Spirit who empowers us, but who more than empowers us, guess what? We don't see God face to face, but because the Holy Spirit is God, he sees God face to face. And you know what he's talking about when he sees God, the Father, face to face, he's talking to God and saying, you know that guy Ben Howard down there? He's making a stupid move right now, and he's asking you for this and this, and he doesn't know, but he doesn't need that. So don't give him that. Give him this instead, because this is what he needs. And that's the kind of thing that the Holy Spirit is doing. Because we don't know what we're supposed to do, but he is going to God and saying, God, this is one of your children. I'm proof of that. Me as the Holy Spirit is proof that this guy, this girl is your child. Now give them what's best to make them into the child that you want them to be. And so we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us and making us who God wants us to be. So why is it that we can endure suffering in this world? Because as believers, we have the hope of an absolutely future perfect world where we exist not in a body that's corruptible and has weakness and pain and everything else, but a body that is totally perfect without the curse of sin. And we can commune not through the Holy Spirit, but in perfect fellowship with God the Father in heaven, where we'll know exactly what to say as we talk face to face with our Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ, who chose us and adopted us as his own. And when we think about being able to commune with God through the Holy Spirit, one of the, the last ways that Jesus Christ communed with his disciples here on earth was through his supper that he initiated through the Lord's Supper, through communion. And when he took the bread and the wine and he gave them to his disciples and he broke the bread and he gave them the cup and he said, this do in remembrance of me and I'm not going to do this again until I eat and drink with you at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so when we take communion, we're looking back at what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross to adopt us as his own, but we're also looking forward to the time when we share again a meal with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in a glorified body in him in heaven, where we will be at home with him forever. And so today, as you uh, take, partake in communion, I hope you'll remember that the past of what he's done for us, but the future that is coming and what is laid up for us who know Jesus Christ. Let's bow for a word of prayer.
Lord, as we come before you today, we are humble. We know that we are imperfect, that we don't even know what we need many times, but you do. And you have given us your Holy Spirit to guide and direct and to intercede on our behalf with our God and Father in heaven. And Lord, I just ask that you would help us to feel your presence, to know your spirit, and to appreciate what you've done for us in the past and what you have promised for us in the future as we live our life here on earth today. We give you the praise and the honor and the glory. For it's in Jesus' name, amen.